We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Let's read our text together. Isaiah chapter 7 will actually begin in verse 1, and we will read through verse 14. Verse 14 will be our text for today. Isaiah the prophet writes this. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of reason and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shale or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, and this is our verse for this morning, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the word of the Lord. There are many times in the Old Testament where God uses a political crisis to get people's attention. And that's certainly what we see here in Isaiah chapter 7. This story that we just read, it takes place at a politically turbulent, politically volatile time in the history of God's people. Hundreds of years earlier, 
After the death of King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel divided and became two kingdoms. There was the kingdom in the north, which was the kingdom of Israel. It had its own government. It had its own place of worship, which was located in Samaria. And then there was the kingdom in the south, which was the kingdom of Judah. And what Judah had going for it was that its identity was tied to the throne of David and to the temple in Jerusalem, which was built by David's son, Solomon. These things were sort of, sort of national symbols that defined the kingdom of Judah. Of course, Judah and Israel were not the only kingdoms on the scene at this time. There were others. Verse 1 mentions Syria who Syria had apparently formed some kind of alliance with Israel because Isaiah tells us that both Israel and Syria came up to Jerusalem and they made some kind of attempt to mount an attack on the city. They they made some kind of attempt to invade Judah. Ahaz was, of course, the king of Judah at this time. That's what Isaiah tells us. And we learn from 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 2, what kind of king Ahaz was. He was not a good king. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David had done. In other words, Ahaz is not a worshiper of the one true God. Instead, he is a worshiper of false idols. In fact, Ahaz even burned his own son, his own flesh and blood, as an offering to the false god of the Canaanites known as Moloch. So you can see Ahaz is involved in some pretty wicked, vile stuff. He is a wicked, vile king. And here in Isaiah chapter 7, things are not looking good for this wicked, vile king. He is literally staring out his window. And seeing there on his front lawn, these two armies who would love nothing more than to overthrow his regime. And for Israel and Syria, their goal, their their aim in doing this was to put their own guy on the throne of Judah who would serve as sort of a, a puppet king who would act in their political interests. This is what we see in verse 6. It says that they wanted to set up the son of Tabeel in the midst of Judah as king. And notice that this is a son of Tabeel, not a son of David, which meant that this was a huge problem. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's clear that it is David's throne that God has chosen to establish forever. And so the very identity of Judah was at stake. Their very identity hanged in the balance because who they were as a kingdom hinged on this promise that the offspring of David would remain on the throne forever. But if you can believe it, these weren't Ahaz's only problems. He had other problems besides Israel and Syria. If you zoom out from chapter 7, and if you look more broadly at the book of Isaiah, you'll see that Judah also has a much bigger threat coming from the east. I'm talking about the Assyrian Empire. Not to be confused with Syria, this is Assyria. And compared to Assyria, the armies on Ahaz's front lawn are small potatoes. This is because Assyria is the world's dominant power at this time in history. 
The military of Assyria was unparalleled in its ability to strike fear and terror in the peoples of the earth. One commentator describes the Assyrian Empire and its army this way. He says that they were skilled and constant in systematic cruelty. So if you're little old Judah, that's not an enemy you want to have. This all goes to show that politically speaking, we're looking at a very turbulent time for the kingdom of Judah. It must have felt like there were threats coming from all different directions. Which is why Isaiah in verse 2 tells us that as Ahaz and the people of Judah looked at what was happening among the nations around them, it says that their hearts shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. In other words, if you were to walk the streets of Jerusalem at this time, you would quickly realize that there was a a palpable sense of fear and anxiety in the air. But it's at this exact moment of palpable fear and anxiety that Isaiah the prophet enters the picture for Ahaz. God has something he wants to say, so he sends Isaiah his prophet. Look at what Isaiah tells him, tells tells Ahaz in verse 4. God wants him to say to Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Essentially, what Isaiah is saying here is that the armies of of Israel and Syria, to God, these armies are little more than a couple of cigarette butts and an ashtray. To to God, they're, they're not a problem. Later on, Isaiah will say in chapter 40, verse 15, that when God looks upon the nations of the earth, when he looks at nations like Israel and Syria, to God, these are like drops of water in a bucket. They are accounted as the weight of specks of dust sitting on a scale. And if that's true, if that is indeed the case, then it means that Israel and Syria, not going to be a problem for God. Not going to be a problem. The Lord will see to it that their plans for a hostile takeover of Judah do not succeed. Look at verse 7. God says of their plans, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. But not only that, God will not only stop Israel and Syria from succeeding in their plans, God will also see to it that in 65 years' time, Israel is not even a nation anymore. So we see in verse 8. We see that that the life and existence of Israel is much like the cottage cheese in the back of your refrigerator. It has an expiration date. And it's here, at this very point, where God is saying these very things, where a line is drawn in the sand for Ahaz. The Lord says to him, do you believe what I'm saying to you? Ahaz, our Are you trusting me to save you, to to deliver you from this crisis? 
That's what it says in verse 9, essentially. It says that if Ahaz is is not firm in the faith, he will not be firm at all. With these words, God is, is, is pressing Ahaz to make a decision here. In this moment, will Ahaz be defined by faith in God or not? Regardless of the particulars of the political situation that's unfolding before him, that's the question that Ahaz needs to answer above all else. Will he place his trust in the Lord or will he place it somewhere else? Verse 11 is the setup where we will see how Ahaz begins to respond. God says to him, ask me for a sign. Let it be as deep as shale or as high as heaven above. That's quite an offer. I mean, if anyone has ever been teed up for spiritual success, it's Ahaz, right? God essentially says to him, Ahaz, I'm wanting you to have faith in me. I'm wanting you to trust me. So here's a blank check. Ask me for anything. Ask me for any amount. I will spare no expense. Just notice how merciful that is on God's part. He is incredibly merciful toward Ahaz, this wicked, vile king. He's astoundingly patient toward him. This is because God in his compassion, just notice the nature and character of God here. God in his compassion is attracted to people who are weak and helpless. And that certainly describes Ahaz here. He is a man in dire need. He is a man backed into a corner. And so the Lord in his compassion and his Grace, showing his steadfast love, showing his character, takes a step toward this wicked, vile king. And he says, Ahaz, all you need to do is ask, and I will be your God. That's literally what it says in verse 11. God is speaking to Ahaz personally. God wants him to trust. God wants him to have faith. And so God makes him the offer of a lifetime. But tragically, Ahaz rejects God's offer. He does not accept it. He refuses it. Verse 12, he says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, on the surface of things, Ahaz sounds very pious here. He has dressed this up in very pious language. Oh, I will not put you to the test, God. You've told us not to do that. I I would never. But really, when you drill down into Ahaz's motive for saying this, you, you quickly realize that in reality, Ahaz has got this all wrong. He's backwards in this. Because of his lack of faith, he, a simple, he, he essentially rips up the blank check he has been handed and he throws it back in God's face. This is just a, an absolutely tragic response on Ahaz's part. But it tells us everything we need to know about him. We know exactly from this response what kind of man Ahaz truly is. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 16, it tells us that after rejecting this offer from God, 
What does Ahaz do? He goes straight to the king of Assyria and he says, rescue me from Israel, rescue me from Syria, deliver me from these two armies and I will be your servant. Think about that. Think about it. Ahaz would rather take his chances with the Assyrian empire than place his trust in the Lord. And God will deal with him accordingly. Verse 13, Isaiah says to Ahaz, is it not enough for you to make men weary that you must weary my God also? So just just notice how the language changed between verse 11 and verse 13. In verse 11, God tells Ahaz, I will be your God. And now in verse 13, God is saying like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not your God. I'm not your God. And so because Ahaz rejected the chance to ask for a sign of his choosing, he will now receive a sign of the Lord's choosing, and it's a sign of judgment. It's an indictment against this wicked, vile king. Verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. As I said a moment ago, this verse, verse 14, serves as our passage for today. So so here's what I want to do. I want us to look at this verse in a couple of different ways. Because when we look at Scripture as a whole, we see that this verse has sort of a, a double meaning. And so to help us understand this double meaning, I want to ask two questions about this verse, which we can unpack in the time we have left. So two questions, here they are. Number one, what did the sign of Emmanuel mean to those who originally heard it? Like what is this, what what would this sign have meant to Ahaz and Isaiah? That's the first question. The second question, what does the sign of Emmanuel mean for us today? Here we are in in North Kansas City. We are gathered as a church here in the year 2022. What does a sign that was given thousands of years ago in a context very different from our own, what does it have to do with us here and now? What does it have to do with the church? So those are the two questions. Let's begin with the first. What would the sign in Isaiah 7.14 have meant to those who first heard it? I think at the very least, we should be able to say that for Isaiah and Ahaz, there would have been some sort of initial confirmation of this sign. Look with me at verses 15 through 17 of Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah says, he, speaking of of the child Emmanuel, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So what are these verses telling us? They are speaking of the sign of Emmanuel as 
at least being partially fulfilled, while Ahaz was still living. While Ahaz was still reigning as king in Judah, there would be a child who was born. Verse 16 tells us that by the time this child reached a a certain age of maturity, the kingdoms of Israel and Syria would be no more. Because in the coming years, the Assyrian Empire, its army would would swoop in and it would descend upon these two nations and it would essentially wipe them off the face of the earth. Their, Their lands would be totally deserted. They would be non-existent. They would be destroyed. Of course, this does not mean that Ahaz and Judah get off scot-free. No. Ahaz has cut a deal with the king of Assyria. So Judah is now allied with the Assyrian Empire. Worse than that, Judah is now indebted to the Assyrian Empire. And you can be sure that wherever the Assyrian Empire was getting involved, there was nothing good that was going to come of that. It was bad news all the way down. That's like getting involved with the mafia. It's not a good idea. And Isaiah is looking at at all of this as it's unfolding, and he's saying to Ahaz, hey, keep your eyes open. Watch for this child. Wait for him, because when he appears, you will be shown that what is revealed in the child's name is true, that God is with his people. But in this case, tragically, God is with his people in judgment. God is present not to save but to judge. The Lord, of course, he wanted to save the people of Judah. He offered to deliver them from their enemies, but at the helm of this nation was a failed king who decided to place his trust elsewhere. And because of this, the kingdom of Judah has now come under the judgment of God. That much is now clear. What is less clear, though, is who exactly this child, Emmanuel, will be. There are many differing opinions about this. This child's identity among Bible commentators and scholars. But for our purposes today, I'll just say this. I do not think it's a coincidence that the the very next chapter of the book of Isaiah begins with a birth. I don't think that's a coincidence. Chapter 8, verse 3. Isaiah says that he went to his wife and she conceived and bore a son. Verse 4, it says that within a short time after the birth of Isaiah's son, the wealth of Damascus, that's Syria, and the wealth of Samaria, that's Israel, would be carried away before the king of Assyria. So I believe there is some connection between the birth of Isaiah's son in chapter 8 and the sign of Emmanuel given in chapter 7. Now, even as I say that, though, you you might be wondering, like, okay, hold on. Doesn't it say that a virgin will conceive? Doesn't sound like Isaiah's wife is a virgin. In fact, in chapter 7, verse 3, it says that Isaiah already has a son. So are we talking about a virgin or not? I mean, this sounds confusing on the surface of things. I'll grant you that. But I'll also say this. The Hebrew word Alma that is translated as virgin 
could have a wider range of meaning than we might assume. Culturally speaking, when we think of a virgin, we bring to the table a very specific set of assumptions. But for Isaiah, it's possible that the word virgin here is simply referring to a young woman. Doesn't necessarily reference whether she is married or not. And if that's the case, if Isaiah is simply talking about a young woman in general, then I think there's a good chance that his son plays some sort of part in the fulfillment of this sign, the initial fulfillment of it at least. But of course, there's much more to the sign of Emmanuel than that. There's much more to it than meets the eye. When we look at Isaiah 7:14, we're not merely talking about events that transpired in Ahaz's lifetime. We're talking about much more than that. In order to see this, we need to zoom out from Isaiah chapter 7 and look at Scripture as a whole, starting with the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 1 describes how the birth of Jesus took place. Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The child would be named Jesus. He would be given this name for a very specific reason. Matthew says it's because he would be the one to save his people from their sins. And then Matthew says in verse 22 that all of this, all that he says, has taken place to fulfill what the Lord spoke through none other than the prophet Isaiah. And Matthew quotes the passage we're looking at today, Isaiah 7:14. He says that the virgin will conceive and bear a son. His name would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here, Matthew is looking back at Isaiah's prophecy, and he's saying that the sign of Emmanuel was not only a sign of judgment against a sinful king, it is also a sign of salvation for a sinful, broken people. That's the ultimate fulfillment of the sign of Emmanuel. That through a virgin who conceived and bore a son, God was sending his own son to us. And listen, he would, the, the son of God would not be born to just a young woman in general. Who knows if she's married or not? No, the, the, the son of God was born to a virgin in the, the truest, fullest sense of that word. Because for Isaiah, the Hebrew word for virgin may have meant more than one thing. But for Matthew, the Greek word for virgin, it just means one thing. It doesn't mean something else. There's no ambiguity there. It can only mean that our Lord and Messiah was born to a woman who was found to be with child because she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit of the living God. And this would mean that this child in her womb was the promised Savior of the world sent to us from heaven to be our Emmanuel, to be God with us. Let's flesh this out more by answering the second question that I asked a moment ago. What does the sign of Emmanuel mean for us today? I want to commend to you three things that the sign of Emmanuel means for us, the church. Three things. I commend these three things to you knowing that, of course, infinitely more could be said about this. But if I had to send you away from this place today with with things that you need to know and, and to believe about Emmanuel, it would be these three things. So here they are. Number one, the sign of Emmanuel means 
that God is present and working in history to keep his promise. If you would, permit me to go back to the beginning of all things. The world as we now know it is not how it always was. It's not how it was at first. In the beginning, everything was good. God made it good. He called it good. It was therefore good. And in this good world, God created humanity. He created Adam and Eve in his image. He placed them in a perfect garden where they would dwell in his holy presence. Every moment of their lives was lived before the face of the living God. That's why God made people. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, very first question of it, is answered this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God made us to joyfully live in his presence. That's our purpose. That's why we exist. And yet, what have we done? We've rejected that purpose. We've thrown it away. You know how the story goes. The serpent creeps into the garden and he tells a lie to Adam and Eve. They started to believe that it would be better to turn away from the God who had given them life and breath and everything. And so they disobey him. They rebel against his purpose for them. Because of their rebellion, the world has been plunged into a curse. All the earth groans in the throes of travail. Sin and darkness now hang over, hang over every aspect of created existence. And to make things worse, in the midst of all of this, we who were made for God's presence now find ourselves alienated from him. The prophecy of Isaiah will later tell us in chapter 59 that our iniquities make a separation between us and our God. Because we have sinned against him, he now hides his face from us. We're like sheep who have gone astray. And yet, even at the moment that this occurred, even when everything became cursed, when, when darkness descended upon the whole world, we see a sliver of light breaking through. Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise. He says that one day a child will be born. He would be born to a woman, and it is this child who would crush the head of that lying, deceiving serpent. Ever since the day this promise was made, God's plan has been unfolding. It has been unfolding to culminate in the coming of this child that we're talking about this morning. This child who we know would be named Emmanuel. We see this throughout the pages of Scripture. God makes this promise over and over. He makes it to Noah and Abraham. He makes it to, to Moses and David. He confirms his promise through prophets like Isaiah and Malachi. The Holy Spirit is speaking through these human authors of Scripture to say that salvation is coming. This promised child is on his way. Look for his appearing. And all of a sudden, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Which means that everything that God has been doing 
throughout the history of the world, everything he's been doing throughout redemptive history, it was all leading to this. And all of it, he was keeping his promise to send a child. But this beckons the question. What's to be gained by this? What is to be gained by the fulfillment of this promise? I mean, good grief, the serpent is still out there deceiving people. Sin and rebellion still run rampant all around us. The world is an incredibly dark place. I mean, just go outside and you'll see evidence right before your eyes that the world is not right. It's not how it was supposed to be. Surely this child that was promised is no empty gesture. For his birth to mean something, it must undo this catastrophe that we have brought on ourselves. That leads us to the next meaning of the sign of Emmanuel. It means that we are saved from our enemies. So we've looked at Isaiah chapter 7. We've seen that Ahaz and Judah, they stood in need of salvation. They had enemies from which they needed deliverance. Israel and Syria were allied against them. And this was for Judah, a cause for fear and dread. It was no doubt a terrifying situation for them. But for sinners like us, if God were to leave us to fend for ourselves, the situation is much worse infinitely worse because our enemies do not come in the forms of armies with swords and with chariots that can kill the body. No, our enemies can do much more than that. They can kill the soul. They can do more than, than harm us temporarily. They can torment us eternally. Allied against us are the works of the devil, the power of sin, and the sting of death. And these three foes encircle us, breathing homicide. They sneer and accuse and they threaten us with eternal damnation. And against them, we don't stand a chance. Humanly speaking, there are no arms that we can take up against these foes. We cannot mount our own defense against them. No, for us, there are only two options. We can either surrender Right, we can give in to Satan and sin and death. Or we can entrust ourselves to someone who can come to our defense and deliver us from these enemies. We need to make our own ally. We need to ally with someone who can stand between us and say of our enemies and say of their threats, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. And the only one who can say that with absolute 100% gospel certainty is Emmanuel. It is Emmanuel who appeared to destroy the works of the devil. It is Emmanuel who is the spotless lamb of God who died in order to take away the sins of the world. It is Emmanuel who is our conqueror who walked out of his grave so that we could say once and for all, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? That's the sign of Emmanuel. It means salvation from our enemies. And the promise of that salvation was carried upon the shoulders of a little child who was born in a virgin and laid in a manger 
in the city of David. But his coming means more than us just being saved from something. It also means that we're saved for something. This brings us to the final meaning of this sign. The sign of Emmanuel means that we are saved to dwell with God now and forever. We see this in how the story of Scripture concludes. And a, mo- a moment ago, we went back to the very beginning of everything. Now we're going to fast forward to the very end of everything. Of the second advent when Christ our Lord has come to judge the living and the dead. And when he has set up his new creation on this earth, God will at that time speak from his throne. And this is what he will say. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death, the death that has haunted and tormented them, it will be no more. Friends, those are precious words. Because with those words, we are seeing the full and final realization of the sign of Emmanuel. We're seeing that the entire plan and purpose of God is that we would dwell with him. He would dwell with us forever. It's the ultimate reason why Jesus has delivered us from our enemies. This is what we're told in 1 Peter chapter 3. Christ came in the flesh. He suffered once for sins. The righteous one took the place of unrighteous ones. And why did he do it? So that he might bring us to God. Everything Emmanuel has accomplished, everything he's done in his earthly life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension into the heavenly places, all of it was so that he could secure for us a future in Christ We have a bright eternity in the presence of God. But in his death and his life and all the things that he has accomplished, Jesus did not only take care of our future. The sign of Emmanuel does not only mean that we have a bright tomorrow. It also means that we have a bright today. We have a bright today because the church is a people marked by the presence of the living God. Matthew chapter 18. Jesus promises that when his people gather in his name, he will be present. That's his promise to the church. Matthew 28, Jesus promises that as we go out into the world, into the nations to fulfill the great commission, he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Of course, the end of the age has not yet come. We still await that day when the glory of his presence will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But in the meantime, as we await that day, we are by no means without his presence. No, God is with us in a very real way. He is here today among his people. He is among his church. This is the great gift of Pentecost. That in Christ, because he wanted to give us his presence His his spirit has now been poured out upon us. 
If his spirit has been poured out upon you, if his spirit is dwelling in you, then it means that the triune God is ever present in your life. In fact, you're united to Christ by grace through faith, so much so that wherever you are present, he is present. When you show up, he shows up. Our gathering today, the gathering of Emmaus Church, is the presence of Christ in me coming into contact with the presence of Christ in you. Just think of what this means. It means that we will never again have to wonder whether God is with us. We will never have to walk into church with our fingers crossed, man, I hope God shows up today. I hope we can worship with enough intensity and passion and emotional fervor that we can conjure his presence in this place. I hope we can be presentable enough so that he'll want to come and, and be here. Friends, you can banish that thought from your mind because of what we know. We know that he will come to us. He always does. He's given us his spirit as an irrevocable gift and guarantee of his presence. So that even as we speak, he is shedding abroad the saving love of the triune God in our hearts to remind us that he is not distant. He is not far off. He is not remote or uninvolved. No, he is God with us. Friends, this is what makes the good news of the gospel so very good. We often talk about the gospel in terms of forgiveness for our sins, salvation from the penalty of sin, or we talk about it in terms of our justification, you know, our being made right with God on the basis of what Christ has done. And all of those things are right and good and true and beautiful. I would never want to diminish any of that. These doctrines are essential for us to believe and to hold dear. I love these doctrines. But the only reason that forgiveness and salvation and justification are so lovely and beautiful is because the result of them is that we get to be with God. God doesn't save us or justify us or forgive us just to say, all right, good luck. See you in heaven. No, we are forgiven. We are justified. We are saved so that we might dwell with him today and forevermore. These blessings of the gospel that I've mentioned, they're blessings because they are meant to bring us into the presence of the God of the gospel. And his presence is our highest possible good. There's nothing better than getting to dwell with God. Having him near is a treasure of infinite glory and worth. There is nothing that compares with it in the heights of heaven above or in the depths of shale below. Which means that the greatest gift that God could ever give us is not a sign of our own choosing. It's not a blank check. No, the greatest gift that God could ever give us is himself. And that's exactly what he's done. He's given us the gift of himself in Christ Jesus, who was born of a virgin to be the Savior we need. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.